0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is episode 45, and it will bring us back to flyover country and back to my home state of Minnesota. While there are many cases out of this state that I want to cover, today's episode is one that captured the national attention, as it includes an unlikely suspect that was dubbed the Killer Grandma. This will be part one of the series, with the final part to be covered in tomorrow's episode. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The Noble Experiment was the nickname given to the United States' attempt at prohibition during the years 1920-1933. through Alcohol was seen as the root cause of crime, social problems, and the existence of poverty. By making alcohol production, sales, and possession illegal, the government hoped to clean up society and solve all of the country's problems. But we now know that it not only failed, it actually made the conditions it was aimed at combating even worse. Prohibition gave rise to organized crime in large cities as enterprising men and women saw the illegal trade of alcohol as a get-rich scheme. Speakeasies were opened in most cities and everyone from citizens to government officials enjoyed the supply of unregulated alcohol that was being produced in backyard stills, moonshine shacks, and in some cases, very large operations that are still considered feats of engineering today. One of those stills was discovered in the small town of Blooming Prairie, Minnesota in 1932. Just before the repeal of Prohibition, federal agents swarmed this town of around a 1,000 residents and uncovered a massive moonshine operation. Just west of town, located next to a country cemetery, was an underground still operation complete with large open rooms, tunnels, and fake haystacks that served as chimneys for the stills. The operation was nicknamed the Liquor Fountain and was centered around a barn that had several large mixing vats and two giant stills that were 23 feet high. The operation was able to produce a staggering 1,800 gallons of alcohol a day and was staffed by 12 men. Federal agents were tipped off to the operation as they started watching sugar consumption and saw the small town had the second largest sugar consumption in the state behind the capital city of St. Paul. But for almost 100 years, the small town slipped back into relative obscurity until one day in 2018 when some concerned friends reached out to the local police department to do a welfare check on their buddy Dave. What officers found at his house would spark a nationwide search for Dave's wife, a woman that would earn herself the nickname of the killer grandma. David Rice was born on April 23, 1963 in Rochester, Minnesota. He graduated from Mayo High School in 1981 and enlisted in the US Navy. In 1982, he got married to Louise White, his gr- a girlfriend from back home in Rochester, Minnesota. He was 19 and she was 20 at the time. His tours of duty would include time in San Diego and then Guam. During this time, the couple would welcome three children in just shy of four years. And when his enlistment was done, he moved back to Minnesota in 1985. Louise Reese was born Louise Witt on February 28, 1962 in Rochester, where she would eventually meet Dave. And after his time in the Navy, they would return to Rochester where Dave got a job working as a forklift operator for a tractor cab production factory. During this time, they raised their three children and Louise operated a daycare center out of their home. While Dave's job provided health benefits and income, he dreamed of starting a business revolving around his passion for fishing. Dave opened a small bait shop in Rochester and with the help of a friend, they grew it into a successful business. But Dave had bigger plans and his partner and him sold the business and together enacted an even bigger plan. In 2005, Dave and Luis bought a house and property in Blooming Prairie. The property had enough space for Dave to build his dream business, a waxworm farm. Now to explain this more, Rochester and Blooming Prairie are located in southeastern Minnesota. This part of the state has a unique geography as it is referred to as the Driftless region because the glacial drift that covered up much of the rest of the region's geography during the last ice age did not reach this part of Minnesota. As a result, the region has a unique geography called karst, in which soft stones in the area were carved out by moving water, creating many caves, river valleys, and waterfalls. Southeastern Minnesota is known for its cold water streams and rivers that run through this geography, which create an ideal environment for trout fishing. Wax worms are the larva of wax moths and are excellent bait for trout fishing and ice fishing. But before Dave could get his business up and running, tragedy struck when shortly after moving into the house, a fire broke out and burned the house to the ground. The family made it out, but they lost some pet cats to the fire. The fire was deemed to be caused by faulty wiring. The house was rebuilt and the community pitched in to help them get back on their feet. With the new house set up, Louise again opened a daycare center. She was said to be very generous and would have hot breakfast sandwiches for the working parents of preschool children and was very active in the community. She spoiled friends and especially spoiled her grandchildren, and she even cooked meals on occasion for the employees of Dave's Waxworm Business. Everyone said she was the sweetest woman and had such a nice smile. The couple was well liked around the small town. They would frequent the town's restaurants and bars, play pool, and go bowling, and Dave was said to be very generous. As his waxworm business grew, so did the profits. He was able to employ a dozen workers, and his waxworms were sold all over the region and in multiple states. They did well year-round, as wax worms also make great bait for ice fishing for panfish during the winter months. Dave was said to have done many kind gestures, like filling up his employees' personal vehicles with gas when they were short on cash, and giving out bonuses to help the mostly late teens and early twenty workers enjoy life a little more. Life was seemingly good for the couple, and on March 8, 2018, Dave was last seen doing what he loved, shooting pool, drinking a few beers, and talking football with some of his buddies in the back of the local bar. Luis and him would leave the next day to go watch their grandson play in a basketball tournament and return to Minnesota on the following Sunday, which was March 11th. The next day, March 12th, Luis was seen at the office of the waxworm farm where she told employees that Dave was not feeling well but she was taking good care of him. This repeated every day that week, and while his employees were concerned, they didn't think much of their boss being under the weather. It was cold and flu season, and Dave had a history of stomach issues. Concern grew more and more, and more people started to question why Dave wasn't around. Friends and family struggled to get a hold of the normally responsive Dave and when they did it was via text message and he was not responding in his normal manner. Dave, like a lot of middle-aged people, struggled to keep up with things like texting and preferred to use the text talk feature instead of typing out his texts. As a result, friends and family were used to texts filled with mistakes and no punctuation. But for a period of roughly 10 days, when they did get a reply from Dave, it was mostly error-free and had proper punctuation. And taking aside from the story here and kind of discuss what we've we've talked about so far, I like in these stories to give. Well, first off, you guys recognize the background in the area. I always try to find some kind of obscure fact or something about the the area and then tie it into the story. So, and or and in this case, then get into uh, the two main uh, subjects of, of the first part of this story and so we have Luis and dave and now i did see several sources that said that they had been married 26 years and i'm not great at math but if in 2018 they were married for 26 years that means they got married in 1992 but everywhere else that I could find said that they got married in 1982 while they was in the Navy. And based on the age of his kids and the fact that they're grandparents at this point, I kind of just assume that they, somebody else who was even worse at math than I was, uh, did their calculations and put 26 years of marriage when they really meant 36 years of marriage. But that aside, uh, what we have here, again, is, is two people that meet early in their teens. It's not uncommon, uh, especially in the military, for people to get married very young. There's a lot of people I know, myself included, who uh, ended up getting married during their time in the, the their military service. And there's a lot of different reasons for this. But sometimes they do work out. And in this case, it, it seemed to for Dave and, and Louise for most of this time. Uh, up until obviously what we're going to be talking about here and what we see is again something that we've talked about uh, mainly in in the cases of the the todd kohlhepp case and maybe some others i'm not 100 sure but it's possible we've talked about it before where people have a habit and a way of communicating and whether that be verbally people can sometimes recognize a voice or a manner of speaking or an accent uh, that somebody has and immediately know who that person is I, during my time as a police officer I got so used to some of the people's voices on the radio that I worked with you know I worked 10-hour shifts in the middle of the night with these people um, you know 40 hours a week you get so used to their voice. And in the case, even with our dispatchers, you'd recognize some of the dispatchers' voices and you'd know who that person was just because you get so used to their voice. So not only do we have a common way that we speak, this also translates to the way that we communicate non-verbally, especially in forms of electronic communication like texting or emails. And it's very difficult, even if you're the significant other of somebody to communicate exactly how they do. Now, eventually we're going to figure out you know, who's responsible for this murder, and we've already dubbed her the killer grandma, so it's no surprise it's going to be Luis is responsible for Dave's death, or dis- I guess at this point it's a disappearance, spoiler alert, but um, she, I guess she could have used talk to text, and maybe it would have simulated better Uh, Dave's text messages to to friends and family. But ultimately, she's never going to be able to replicate something that somebody else has gotten used to doing year after year after year as their form of communication. So the combination of him being responsive, or sorry, normally, and then now not being responsive, and when he is, it's not coming back the correct way. Uh, I mentioned that he had some health issues, so it wouldn't be completely uncommon. But from the way I'm picturing this, the, the waxworm farm is actually just behind the house on the property. So I'm assuming the office for the waxworm farm is also in that building. And so to me as an employee, especially if I have a boss that's very involved in my business and very involved with my employees, yeah, laying low for a day or two, if you have to travel some distance to get to work would make sense maybe even for three or four days but over the course of 10 days and the fact that the your place of employment is a short walk to work and you're not even sticking your head in just to say you know hey guys how's it going this is for a guy that's normally very involved with his employees and everything things are just not going to be adding up so We also have to add in the fact this is March in Minnesota, and this is kind of usually the "quote unquote" end of our winter. I guess sometimes winter does go into April and almost into May, but usually by this mid-March time period, we're kind of it is very snowy. We do have a lot of snowstorms that come through in March with the spring precipitation and the and the still cold air uh, dropping a lot of snow. So it's not completely uncommon that. People may go three, four, five days, especially after a big snowstorm or something where they're not out in public and not being social. So if you combine that with not feeling well, again, it's it's not alarm bells aren't going to be ringing after a day or two. But once we get further into this time period where nobody is seeing or, or actually communicating with Dave, it's just going to reach the point in which nobody can avoid the fact that they haven't spoken or heard from dave now this mounting suspicion is actually going to reach its peak when dave was supposed to leave for an annual fishing tournament in illinois and the trip required him to take his cadillac escalade that could pull his 20-foot boat and if you guys don't know what a cadillac escalade is basically uh chevrolet the pickup truck company came out with this it was called a, a Chevy Avalanche and it was a pickup truck that had kind of a a unique back end to it it had these kind of s- triangular side rails that ran from the behind the passenger cab section of the pickup part way down the bed so it, from it stuck out from other pickups pretty clearly and now Cadillac is the luxury brand version of the of Chevrolet um, or GM Motors I guess. So these Cadillac Escalades are very popular in the mid-2000s, late-2000s kind of time frame and so it's going to be a vehicle that sticks out some. When I listen to podcasts from other countries they often refer to different vehicles and of course you know whether you're in ireland england france germany australia wherever it may be some of some of the name brands and vehicle models will match up but there's a lot of times where podcasters from other countries or just covering another country will talk about a vehicle just naming its make and model and when i'm trying to picture this unless i know it i have to either look it up or try to figure it out so if i reference a vehicle that's that's especially one that's going to be unique or going to be being looked for uh in a case i'll try to always give some type of a a verbal description of it as well so and and because it's this pickup truck it's got an engine powerful enough to tow this 20-foot boat that he's going to need for this fishing tournament in illinois now according to luis he was supposed to have left on march 20th for the tournament but employees are going to see uh Louis driving the truck away on march 22nd from the house so this is gonna bring a lot of alarm bells because they hadn't seen dave for the you know couple week and a half prior to this and they just assumed he wasn't feeling well was taking some time off before this fishing tournament so he was feeling 100 percent for this fishing tournament and then they may have even assumed after march 20th they weren't going to see him because he was at this fishing tournament and likely his pickup truck would have been in some type of a garage and with them not seeing it they would just assume that he had left on march 20th but now with louise driving away in said pickup truck on or two days after dave was supposed to have left in that truck all types of alarm bells are going off and this is this Word of this is gonna to get to Dave's business partner who runs this waxworm farm with him, and he's gonna be concerned enough to call the Blooming Prairie Police Department. And two officers from the police department drive up to the isolated house just outside the town of 2,000 people. And I mentioned 1,000 people earlier, that was in 1930 when that still was discovered. That The town, you know, is doubled in size, now it's at 2,000 people. And it was a cold night with snow still on the ground, and the house sat mostly dark. The officers did a perimeter check of the house and came across an unexpected sight: an open bathroom window with the light on inside. As nighttime temperatures this time of the year in Minnesota average well below 32 degrees Fahrenheit or 0 degrees Celsius, homes are sealed up tight to keep the cost of heating home to a minimum. And this perimeter check that they're doing—that's something that police officers. Uh, Whenever I was dispatched to an alarm or check the welfare, we don't kick down every door that we find because we don't know what's going on inside. For all these officers know what limited information they may have gotten from Dave's business partner to the dispatcher and the dispatcher to them. Again, they're just doing a check welfare because. Because things are kind of a little suspicious and their hope is that they likely will knock on the front door there's no answer they want to just they want to solve what's going on talk with the parties inside be able to say everything's good and then leave clearly i'm guessing they're going to knock on the front door the house is dark there's no answer so now they do what's called this perimeter check which is walking around the house and looking for signs that aren't right and in cases where it's a check the welfare of a older person or somebody who lives alone, or you know, e- even a family, I guess, you're gonna be looking for signs of a break-in. So could there have been a you know, burglary gone wrong, turned into a robbery, turned into a murder situation? Um, and also you're looking for a way to see into the home and potentially find an open door or window so that if you do have to go in the home, you don't have to do any damage to the house to get in there so that if ultimately it's found out that Dave did go to the fishing tournament and Louise was going off somewhere she was expected to, they don't come home to a broken window or a kicked in door done by the police department to check their welfare when they were just fine. So again, doing these perimeter checks, just standard procedure, but they're going to find this open door or the, sorry, this open window in the bathroom and immediately recognized something's not right. Now the bathroom window was elevated, so one of the officers hoisted the other up to see into the home, and what he saw in the bathroom looked like a body under a blanket. Blooming Prairie PD only has nine officers, including the chief, but their website says they provide 24-7 coverage, so by doing the math, I'm figuring that only The two officers that are working this evening are probably the only two officers working that night. They likely go down to single coverage, but because this was, I wanna say, 8.30 at night, there might have been a time period in which they had double coverage during those busier times, which is usually 4 p.m. to midnight, kinda is when the majority of calls come into a police department. So they have their two officers, but that's all they have. The other seven officers are off either you know, be working other shifts the next day or whatever it might be. And so they put in a request for assistance from the Dodge County Sheriff's Office. And once they had their four officers, they're going to go inside and search this home. And you can search a house with two people, but if you're assuming there's a potential dead body covered by a blanket inside that home, you're also thinking that whoever killed that person might still be in that house and at that point two officers while you can search a place with two officers and you can do it somewhat safely if there is no rush there's no what we call exigent circumstances to go in that home you're gonna err on the side of caution, get more officers so that if anything were to happen, you've got coverage to your rear. You can send two officers in to search a room while two officers hold the hallway in case somebody jumps out. It's just it's just a safer way to search. So they wait for these two or these two other officers or deputies from the Dodge County Sheriff's Office, and now they're gonna go inside and search the home. Inside the home, they find 54-year-old David Reese, deceased on the floor of the home with three small caliber bullet wounds. Two of the wounds seemed to be from the same bullet that passed through his forearm and into his chest, a sign he was trying to defend himself from the first shot. The second gunshot was to his back, likely after he fell forward onto the ground. His body was in advanced stages of decomposition, indicating he'd likely been dead for 10 days or more by the time he was found. The small town had a homicide investigation on their hands, but their suspect was on the run and had at least a full day's head start. Police immediately began looking for Louise Rice and looked to her history to hopefully locate her and a motive for the murder. So now that we know more about this couple, we need to figure out what happened to Dave and why did Louise do this and where did she go? Now, despite her reputation for being a kind and generous person around town, Louise had a dark side. She was deeply addicted to gambling and had likely reached a desperation point by the evening of March 11th. As investigators looked into Louise's past, they found several stunning revelations about her gambling habit that would shock most in the community. Louise had developed a habit of playing high-stakes slots at a casino called Diamond Joe's, which was located off Interstate 35 just on the Iowa side of the state border. She would often go to the casino and lose a lot of money. Her son told Inside Edition that his mother lost half a million dollars that she inherited from her father through compulsive gambling. After she lost that money, she concocted a scheme to put her ailing sister into a care facility and gain guardianship of her sister's legal affairs. She used this guardianship to siphon an additional $100,000 from her sister's inheritance before a social worker caught on. Louise was not brought up on charges under the agreement that she would repay her sister the $100,000 debt. From all accounts, Dave did not approve of her gambling habit and even suspected of her planning weekends away and using that time to run to the casino and spend full days of gambling money away. It was reported that Luis was caught siphoning money from the waxworm farm and had also emptied a savings account that had been put aside to purchase a new vehicle for Dave. The timing of these incidents are close to the murder and it's believed Luis and Dave fought about this on the evening of Sunday, March 11th after returning from their grandson's basketball tournament and out of desperation Luis shot and killed Dave. The town of Blooming Prairie actually sits on the edge of Dodge and Steele counties in Minnesota, with the city only a mile from the point in which four counties meet. With the home being in Dodge County, the small town police department looked for assistance from the Dodge County Sheriff's Office, who took lead on the investigation. It was up to them to locate an armed and dangerous woman who had already killed out of desperation once. Considering that her homicide victim was the husband she was supposed to love. Law enforcement feared that she would likely be desperate again very soon and would not hesitate to kill again. Law enforcement needed to find Louise and she had an almost two day head start. It was not going to be an easy task to find one mid fifties grandma in a country of over 300 million people. So that kind of ends the story part of today. This is one of those cases where Um, I started researching it and started typing it out. And next thing I know, I was over 6,000 words into it. And my usual cutoff is around 3,000 words between the narrative and my asides and the introduction and the conclusion, everything like that. That's usually about 45 to 50 minutes. Um, This ended up being, it's a little heavier on the story, which I go through faster, and lighter on the uh, analysis. So this episode ended up being a little shorter than I expected, but ultimately if I had tried to do both of these as one episode, it probably would have been closer to an hour and a half for, for both of them together. So We'll get more into the manhunt, or I guess this case, the the grandma hunt for the killer grandma in tomorrow's episode. Uh, Some of the further crimes she commits, the way that she's actually captured, and we'll break down some of the analysis there. But this does give us a little bit of time to discuss how a case like this is going to be investigated at the beginning. And when I say that, I mean, we talk about these small town police departments and I I, I don't mean at all to sound derogatory towards these small town police departments. They are very necessary and they operate differently than large town police departments. Now, a lot of small towns actually just get coverage from the local sheriff's office, which has its pros and cons. If you're in a small town and you're covered by the local sheriff's office, you don't have to budget and fund for a police department of your own. You'll provide as a city towards helping the sheriff's office budget, and then they provide you with a certain amount of coverage based on your size within the county. So you might have a deputy or two assigned to cover your city, but they'll also cover the the area and the rest of the county. And the issue with that is, if you have a major incident somewhere in the county, and let's say you live in a big county, I know there's some in northern Minnesota that the the northern border of the county is the Canadian border, and the southern border of it's Lake Superior, and you're talking a long drive from one part of the county to the other. If all of your county deputies are pulled to one part of that county for a major incident. The rest of the county is kind of left exposed. Now, in Minnesota, we also have uh, Minnesota Highway Patrol that will help also cover some of these major incidents, and they can also respond to, to calls for service in these smaller towns if other agencies are or the main agencies are tied up. So there is kind of this overall coverage that it's not like an incident's going to occur in a town and there just aren't any officers anywhere that can respond to it. But when you have your own police department, you have dedicated officers that are going to be mainly keyed in on that department, on that uh, city. Now, Can an incident occur in the next city over, two cities over, somewhere else in the county where they put out a mutual aid request and those officers leave Blooming Prairie and go somewhere else? Absolutely, that can happen, but their primary responsibility is Blooming Prairie, and if something were to happen in Blooming Prairie while they're off on this mutual aid, they're going to be the first to get called back to deal with this stuff in their city, so whenever i do one of these cases especially the cases in the upper midwest i have to research the law enforcement structure of that city depending on whether they have their own department or the sheriff's office now just because they have their own department does not mean that they are going to be able to handle the level of of requirement that comes with a homicide investigation even in the department I worked with, up until we started our own crime scene team in 2008, we relied on the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension crime scene team to come out and work our homicides because we thankfully didn't have that many homicides. So when we did have a major crime, we called out a, a state agency to come offer assistance. Now. When you do that, you lose certain control parts of your investigation. You create an, uh, a communication—not a barrier per se—but it's 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 just a hurdle that you have to get over because it's not your personnel, it's not your reporting system that they're filing their reports into. So while this does complicate things sometimes for the investigation, it does make sure that things like the crime scene processing is done and is done correctly and fully as opposed to the smaller department just trying to wing it and get through it because as we find out in many of these cases when they do that it does come back to bite them in court when if and when the case goes to trial and i'm only saying all this stuff because The reason I started this podcast was to offer law enforcement insight based on my experience into true crime, and any chance I get to teach true crime listeners about the operations and how some of these things work, as long as it's got some relevance, I understand there's, you know, this isn't furthering this case that much more, but there is relevance as to why the crime is occurring in this small town, and you've got another sheriff's office taking over. And we're actually going to talk in the next episode about some of the other agencies that are going to get involved in this case and how all that stuff works and how everybody kind of sometimes works together, sometimes doesn't. Um, but yeah, you know, if a case occurs in a large city, Chicago, New York, LA, Minneapolis, They've got the resources, and in a lot of cases, everything down to the the labs themselves to to conduct these investigations and collect the evidence, process the evidence, everything all themselves, all of what we call in-house. And But that's because of, of how many of these homicides and major crimes that the, the city deals with each year. Whereas in these small departments, you know, they might have one homicide every 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so they're not gonna stock the supplies that are needed. Uh, some people will ask about a crime scene and all the stuff. Well, we had certain, ma- what we called our major case uh, kits that were ready to go so that if we had a homicide, every fingerprint brush in that kit was sterile had not been opened that the powder itself was sterile and hadn't been opened. All the DNA collection stuff was put into sterile bags and sealed so that if, when we went to this major crime and whether it was dusting for prints, whether it was collecting DNA evidence, we couldn't have any defense attorneys get on, you know, put us on the stand and say, well, if you just processed a burglary the week before, and dusted for prints isn't a chance that you collected some DNA on your fingerprint bush and then deposited it at this murder scene. And it's another case where somebody might be willing to cop to a lower crime because uh, a burglary charge is nothing compared to a you know a homicide charge. So they, the attorney could throw their client under the bus and say, you could have gotten my client's DNA from this burglary scene and then transferred it to this homicide scene or when you when you collected the dna from the homicide scene it was because you had dusted for prints using the brush so so we had entire kits set aside for working our major cases including our homicides a smaller department doesn't have usually the resources storage space etc to do something like that so they do require outside help to come in. And when you talk about a county, you know, counties made up of several cities, including oftentimes the largest city, which is often where the county seat is. And so it's easier for the county to consolidate all of that equipment, supplies, personnel power, everything like that to cover these major cases. And in the case of Minnesota, that's where the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension comes in and offers... Uh, agents that serve as investigative aides and investigators as well as their crime scene team because ultimately it's their lab that does the processing for i'm just gonna throw out a number here but 90 percent of the cases in minnesota uh, and and the majority of the cases that occur outside of of minneapolis and st paul are going to be handled by the bureau of criminal apprehension lab so In a case like this, even though we've got a homicide that's going to turn into a national sensation, it is actually being handled at this point rather well by this small department and by this county sheriff's office, but we'll get into again some of the difficulties as the investigation goes on as a result of this and break down the rest of the case in the episode tomorrow. And as always, if you guys ever have any questions, concerns, anything like that, um, feel free to reach out to me uh, either via the Facebook page at True Blue Crime Productions or via my email at truebluecrimeproductions@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer any of your questions. Uh, I'll, I'll also, since I have a little bit of extra time here, say it is continues to be amazing to see all of the uh new listeners hopping on uh, when i check the analytics through my website uh that that hosts my podcasts uh, i can see the countries where people are listening to and the cities in those countries where people are listening to this this podcast and uh to all my friends in australia and ireland and the uk and and several other places are listening and i, I see new countries pop up every week it's awesome to see that stuff. Uh, if you guys have any questions or just want to say hi, reach out to me on, on email. And I'm pretty good about getting back to people rather quickly through the email and uh, building that relationship. And, and hopefully, like I said, we continue to build the listenership. Tell other people about the podcast. There's a lot of uh, uh, of my friends that have told other people that the word of mouth is spreading. That's why we're approaching well over 2,000 downloads at this point. And and we're just going to keep growing as I work towards CrimeCon in September. Uh, hopefully I can see some of you there. If any of you plan on attending, you can swing by my booth. But other than that, that's it for the first part of the Killer Gramma case. And as I said, tomorrow will be much more story and analysis of the actual story, sticking main, mainly to that for the rest of the episode uh, tomorrow. So thank you guys for listening. Feel free to reach out to me. Uh, through the methods I mentioned earlier, and thanks for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye.